0: He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in, a, in still a, another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that are usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19 centuries have come and gone and today he's the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth like that one solitary life. And so goes this classic entitled One Solitary Life, written by an anonymous writer, author. Kenneth Scott Lauderette is not so anonymous. He is perhaps one of the greatest historians that's ever lived, and he said, without a doubt, Jesus Christ influenced more people than anyone who has ever lived on the earth. His name was not so much written as it was plowed into history. George Buttrick said, Jesus of Nazareth gave history a new beginning. He is at home in every land. His birth is celebrated across the world, and His death day sets His gallows against the skyline of every city. And I could go on and on to tell you what great men have said about the greatest man who ever lived. But have you ever wondered what He said about Himself? I mean, what did Jesus say about Himself? And is what he said about himself what you would expect from the greatest man who's ever lived, from the greatest influence this earth has ever known, from one who, is, who has affected the life on earth more than anybody else, from one whose name is not written but plowed into history, from one whose cross puts a gallus against the skyline of every city, is what he says about himself what you'd expect? I know of only one reference in the Bible where Jesus ever said anything about Himself. I want you to turn to that. It's the 11th chapter of Matthew and the 29th verse. Now, you hold your place on John 13, and I just want you to flip to Matthew 11:29. 29. I got this brochure in, in my office not long ago and had a picture of this evangelist on it. And, and, and the headline of this brochure was, one of America's ten greatest preachers. I looked for my name in that list. I didn't find it. I thought about the guy who said, I may not be the greatest in the world, but I'm in the top two. The greatest man who ever lived, what did he say about himself? Chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek, gentle. That means power under control. It means force under the domination of another. It means that which has power that has been yielded to the mastery of someone else. I am gentle and lowly, humble in heart. That's what he said about himself. Lowly. It means to be made low. It means to kneel down and do a task that's so insignificant and menial. It's hardly even noticed. It means to help someone else. It's servanthood. And when Jesus said, I want you to come and be like me, that's what he had in mind. When Jesus said, you bear my name and I want want to shine out of your life, I want you to be a representative of me and let people know what I'm like by looking at your life, this is what He had in mind. Are you ready for that? And when God said, I'm going to conform you to the image of my Son, I'm going to make you like my Son, Jesus, this is what He had in mind. This is what He wanted to do. He wanted to produce the meek. And the lowly at heart, he, want, he wanted to produce or wants to produce service. there's a picture of him. I just want to flip through that for you before we get into the heart of the message. John 5, John 4:34. just look at this. John 4:34. And Jesus said to them, "My food. Is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My essential food is to do the work of Him who sent me and His will. Same book, chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I don't live my life on the basis of my initiative, what I want. I live my life on the basis of the will of God. Same book, chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Same book, chapter 17, verse 4. Chapter 17, verse 4. And this is the end of it. And Jesus is praying that marvelous high priestly prayer. And He says in verse 4, I glorified Thee on earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given me to do. When God said, I'm going to conform you to the image of my Son, that's what He had in mind. Are you ready for that? Now John chapter 13 is the illustration where we're going to nestle down and spend about 15 minutes or 20. Let me set the background. You've got the worksheet there. You want to take some notes. This is the background. They're in Jerusalem. And the streets of Jerusalem are dusty except for just a few. And they come to a house. It is the custom. It is a part of the culture when they come to a house for a servant to be there ready to wash their feet. They had wash basins sitting at the doors. And these servants would be there, our servant, and as they'd enter they would kneel and wash their feet with the water in the basin. But not every house was wealthy enough to have a servant. You had to be middle income or above. And many of the folk that were attracted to Jesus were the poor. And so they came often to houses where there were no servants. And so there, were some, there was someone in the group who would always volunteer to wash the feet. It was a part of what they did. But for someone to kneel down and wash their, one another's feet or wash their feet it was, the, it was a meek and lowly task. It was to kneel down to something insignificant. It was to turn loose of power and rights and yield those up and surrender them. And there wasn't anybody in this crowd that would do it. They were bickering over place and arguing over position and arguing over who would be the greatest. And so the sir, the master himself, the Lord, took the towel and girded about him, the servant's towel, and he knelt down and he washed their feet. And there is a demonstration that he does, that he gives in the washing of their feet. That's where we are now in the outline, the demonstration. First of all, he demonstrated what it was, what it meant to really love. John said, having loved them, he loved them perfectly without end he loved them flawlessly he loved them without without an imperfection he loved them divinely the English language is so impoverished we have only one word to to describe or to explain define the infinite range of human of love both human and divine And so with the same word we we talk about lust and and eros, and we, we talk about caring for another as a brother, and we talk about deep personal affection, and even the redemption of the cross. We have only one word for all of those kinds of things, but the Greek language is not so impoverished. There's a different word for God's kind of love, that unselfish, outreaching l- grace of love at, at its very best, and that's the word that He uses here. I'm impressed that it was John who said that Jesus loved them and not Jesus. He did not look around the group and say those little cliche things that we say. Fellas, I've been with you three years and during this time we've been together, I've come to love you. He didn't say that. As a matter of fact, it was a shock to me when I discovered that Jesus not one time ever looked at anybody and said, I love you. He never did. You know why? I, well, I don't know. That'll help. <laughs> Maybe it was because he didn't want to give us a weasel way out of loving. Maybe it was because he didn't want us to have this way of going around saying, I love you and counting that as Christ-likeness. Maybe he wanted to love not so much by what he said as by what he did. And so that towel and that wash basin just shouts to the world, I love you. I want you to imagine yourself there that night. There's an eerie silence that falls over that crowd and there's the splashing of water and they look around and Jesus is coming toward them. Think how you would have felt. He's coming toward you. This man you've been around and you've sensed there was something unique about him. There was an awe of God in his life. You saw him raise the dead and heal the sick and perform all matters of of miracles. And he's coming toward you to wash your feet. Oh, what love. And John was so impressed by it that in his little epistle he talks about it. And he says, if you have the necessary things of life like Food and clothing, and you shut up your heart against another, how can you say the love of God is in you? And then he asks, then he says it little children love not in word, but in deed and in truth. And this is the, admi- this is the demonstration that Jesus is showing us that genuine love is not something you say or feel, genuine godly love is something you do. And then he, de- then he demonstrated the ability to see beyond the surface to the real. My verses are dynamite. They're, they're drama-filled. Verses 5 through 7, it says that Jesus is coming towards Simon. I can just see that. Man, it's just as plain to me. Here he sits over here with this group. They're reclining. And maybe Jesus starts with John and he's working his way towards Simon. And Simon is saying under his breath, "He's not going to wash my feet. I guarantee you he's not going to touch me. He's not going to wash my feet. Says it over and over. I know what you would have said. I know what I would have said. Okay, Bucko, have it your way. You know. You don't want me to wash your feet? That's fine. I don't want to wash them anyway. You don't want me to serve. You don't want me to minister? That's great. I'm not here for that's not I'm not doing it for the fun of it. If you don't appreciate it, I just won't do it. That's what you would have said. It's what I would have said. Not Jesus. This is what he said. You don't understand what I'm doing to you now. Implied, but I do. And you will later. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, Simon, I'm able to see beyond the surface to what is really in you and what you really are, what you really feel. I I want you to know, I want you to believe this. That if you really want to become a lover of souls and the servant of men, you're going to have to be able to hear what is not being said and see what is invisible. Sometimes the cries, I don't need you, I don't want you, are really cries of I'm lonely, help me. I'm grateful on Sunday morning when I see some of you come in with little children under your arms that you have brought to church and I'm able to see that you are able to see beneath the surface. That's interpretation. And there's a personal interpretation in this. The scripture says that Jesus knowing that he had all power given to him, that is the dunamis, he had all power to make an authority to make others subservient, And understanding that he was sent from God, that's the decree, he was there because God sent him, and that he was going back to God, that's the destiny, he understood all of that. Because he understood, he knelt down and served. It wasn't that he wasn't conscious of who he was, what he had, and where he was going that he served, it was in the full consciousness of it. It wasn't that he forgot that he was God and so he became a servant. It was that he knew he was God and he wanted to act like him that he served. Have you forgotten who you are and what you have, where you came from and where you're going? Do you understand that you and I are here not to let life be organized around our wants and wishes and needs, but we're here to serve. And the authority that's been given us is the authority of servanthood. And the decree that God has given is that we serve Him. And the destiny is that we'll stand before God and give an account of our servanthood. Interpretation. And then He gave us a demonstration of self-denial. And He rose from supper. You know what that means? It means He got up from what He was enjoying and He gave up that for something else. I want want you to know that servanthood involves sacrifice, self-denial, interruption. You can tell by looking at me that one of my favorite pastimes is supper. You know, I like to eat. Uh, When when I'm eating, I'm doing what I enjoy the most. Sometimes servanthood interrupts what what you're doing you like the best. You ever notice that? I've tried to I've tried to calendar my ministry. I got me one of these little Baptist diaries. I thought, you know, preachers carry those around. You've got to have one of those if you're going to preach. And I put that little thing here in my pocket, right here where every preacher carries it, you know, next to their heart. And and I and I decided I was going to schedule my ministry. I couldn't get what I was supposed to do on that little calendar. It just won't fit there. Servanthood interrupts what you want to do the best, what you like to do the best. It comes at supper time. It comes in prime time television time. It comes when the cowboys are playing. Servanthood involves interruption and self-denial and nobody likes that, do they? I want you to listen to these words by Barbara Brockhoff. Listen to this dynamite stuff. Absolute self-denial is a stranger to us. We think we have a right to so many things. A right to be comfortable. A right to warmth. A right to be loved. A right to be always understood. A right to a fair treatment. A right to express ourselves. Self-denial is an ugly, dirty, loathsome word to us. These are days when we'd rather emphasize self-realization, self-identity, self-fulfillment. But how often do you hear about self-denial? We're so self-oriented that we define roughing it as having to cut a filet mignon with a dull knife. And so Burger King says, have it your way. Don't deny yourself. And McDonald says, You deserve a break today. But Jesus said, If you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and deny yourself. C.S. Lewis said, If you want a a religion that makes you feel real comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. Fenelon said, You can't serve God halfway. It was said of St Francis of Assisi that when he gave himself absolutely to God both silver and soul that then he began to sing and dance in the streets. And Sam Shoemaker said there comes a time when every Christian must make the choice between two pains, the pain of self-denial or the pain of a divided heart. It's self-denial. Servanthood. Obedience. That's the demonstration. Now there are two, there are two commands. How is it? In there? there are two uh, admonitions in the text. Watch these. Number one is implied in verse 7. He said, "Do you, know what I'm, you don't know what I'm doing to you now. He asked the question later on. He said, do you know what I've done? But, but the answer is already in verse 7. You don't know what I'm doing to you now. You know what that says? You know what that means? It means that there's some things we have to do as an example of following Jesus that we we don't understand at all about. There are times when you are going to be called to serve God and it doesn't make a bit of sense at all. There are going to be times when you're going to be involved in servanthood and ministry and none of it fits together, none of it jives. It don't make a bit of sense. God's going to ask you to do some things in servanthood that don't make a bit of sense at all. It's not ours to reason why. It's not ours to make reply. It is ours but to do and die. And living in the faith dimension and in the servant role when a man is absolutely and totally obedient to God means that he's going to be doing some things that he doesn't understand while he's doing them. And the second admonition is that you wash one another's feet, underline one another. Now, I, I, don't, I wouldn't have any problem washing Jesus' feet. I mean, that sounds like that would be fantastic to get to wash the Lord's feet. And those nails prints there, etc. But I'm going to have to be honest, there's some of you whose feet I wouldn't enjoy washing tall. <laughs> It's wash one another's feet. And the implication of that, what that says is that when you come to the place of absolute obedience, self-denial, and servanthood, that you could wash one another's feet, your peers. You could bow down to somebody who is equal with you, maybe not half as smart or as good looking, and you could wash their feet. You've got it, brother. You're there. That's the admonition. Now, there are three applications that I'm through. Number one, obedience means personal involvement. Obedience means personal involvement. You can't wash someone's feet without getting wet. You can't wash someone's feet without getting dirty. You can't do it by standing off at a distance and shouting. You can't do it by reading a book or going to class. It means personal involvement. Obedience means personal involvement. Secondly, obedience requires Christ-like unselfishness. This is a tough question. You ready? Tough question number one. Do you know how much time is spent pleasing you? Do you know how much time is spent pleasing you? It means giving up your rights. It means sacrifice. It'll cost you. It'll cost you something to be an obedient servant. It'll cost you some time. It'll cost you. It'll cost you some habits. It'll cost you some tears. It'll cost you. Obedience, thirdly. Obedience results in ultimate happiness. Now this is the word he said... If you know these things, did you see that verse 17? If you know these things, blessed, that word is the same word that's found in the Beatitudes. Happiness is found in the strangest places, isn't it? That's the same word that's found in the Beatitudes. Happy are you, blessed are you. It means the bliss of God. It means the ecstasy of heaven. It means the joy of God Himself. He said, if you know what I've done, I've bowed, I've I've given up, I've demonstrated love, I've sacrificed my rights, I've knelt down to wash your feet. In this example, if you know what I've done, and you do it, you do it, you're going to know for the first time the bliss of God. I'm not going to call his name, but not long ago I sat down with a fellow who visited with me for a while, and we talked about his successes, and then he said, you know, he said, I'm really not happy. I said, are you happy? He said, no, I'm really not. And he started crying. He said, I got, you know, he told me what he had. And I said, well, what do you want to do about it? And just for a minute, you know what he said? He said, I'd like to give my life to some great cause. And then he caught himself. I was just getting ready to offer him a job here in the church. He caught himself. And he said, oh, well, I guess it's too late for me and passed it away, passed it off i tell you what, you don't know. No one knows the joy of the God until he's bowed down and scraping the dirty feet off a dirty world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, for his admonition and his instruction. Thank you that he's told us this is what we should do. And I pray that we'll follow his example and his command so that we might be like Jesus. Because we pray in his name for his sake. Now the invitations tonight are just like always. The first invitation is for you to come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. If you stood before God tonight and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Can you say, because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I repented of my sin and I trusted Him to be my Savior. Can you say that? Would you like to receive Christ tonight? You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about joining a church, being baptized. I'm talking about accepting Christ as your personal Savior. Have you ever done that? Second invitation is for rededication of life. If God says to you, your life is cold. You you'd follow me afar off. I want you to come up close. Maybe you place your life here, promise of letter. We'll give you that opportunity. We're just going to stand and sing a song you all know. You want to turn it, turn to the book, get the book to it. Just stand and we'll sing it. We'll invite you to come.